Oh, I think I have notes today. Everything else blew up this morning, but I have notes today. That's a beautiful thing. If, you're, if this is your first time for like the last month or so, for whatever reason, all the, all the notes sermon-wise, everything's been glitching like crazy. So this is a beautiful thing. I can put these away and, and not use backup. This is delightful. It's a wonderful surprise. One of the um, you know, fiercest debated biblical topics out there, um, when you look at all the, the things that we talk about in Scripture, all the theology, all the, all the different things that keep coming up, one of the, 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 the most interesting to people, it seems, and fiercest debated is kind of the, the study of end times and of Christ's return. Right? There's, there's volumes written on it. Um, it. It seems that a lot of people are afraid to tackle things like the book of Revelation that deals with, with that second coming and, and the new Jerusalem and the new heavens and the, the new earth and all the things that come with it. But we... We just, since the moment Jesus ascended after his resurrection, there's been this obsession about all of the details and the, the, the things that will happen and, and, and the when and the how and all those things have been this hot debate. And there's all the camps of various millennialisms and all the, all the different things. And I'm not going to bore you with a lot of that today. Um, there, there's Bible studies that we'll have, and we'll, we'll, we'll happily address those. We don't shy away from that stuff. But it's, it's more than we have time for unless we want to be here at like 2 p.m. still with half of you asleep as I just keep droning on and on and preaching about amillennialism. So the, the thing, though, that's, that's really not strange is that this obsession is very much in line with biblical precedent, right? It's not weird for us to have an obsessive wanting to understand the end times, to want to talk about it a lot, to want to study it a lot, even more so than a lot of other things. There's, there, there's throughout Scripture just a breadth of discussion about this very subject. You know, in the New Testament, anybody know how many chapters are in the New Testament? You want to take a guess? 260 chapters, total chapters. Now, chapters are arbitrary because they're not part of Scripture. We split them up that way. Man kind of did that. But there's 260 chapters of Scripture. The, the return of Christ... Right? The second coming of Christ is mentioned 318 times in the New Testament by various authors. And so on average, more than once per chapter do we have a reference of some kind to that second coming, to the time of Christ's return. Right? It's all throughout Scripture. The only places in the New Testament that don't talk about Christ's return are the book of Galatians, because it has other things to deal with, and Paul talks about Christ's return plenty in all of his other books, and then John's Second and third epistle, right? At the very end of the scripture, you have kind of first, second, and third John. The second and third don't talk about it. But third John is like this big. <laughs> it barely has time for a, a salutation, let alone to get into something as intricate and a big deal as end times. So it makes sense for us to want to engage with it. It makes sense for us to, to want to study it. Here's what doesn't make sense, though. Of all of the things that we are obsessed with when we look at the end times, What's the number one topic that people want to talk about and know about? Take a guess. When? Yeah. Isn't that weird? Imagine being a disciple and hearing Jesus talking about his return and all of the things that come along with it. And Jesus finishes and goes, all right, any questions? And they go, uh, yes, when is it going to happen? And he says, no one knows the time or the hour. Um, any other questions? Anybody want to know a little detail about the streets of gold? Or what your life will be like when you're there. It's like, uh, yeah, I have a question. So, like, is it soon? We're not talking about the time. Any other questions? Anything else? Is it about the time? No. Okay, go ahead. So, like, in my lifetime? No! 
right? Stop. You picture Jesus just being so fed up with those questions, but it's, it's funny. We, we really want to talk about the when. And it's an odd and a strange thing because the when is the one thing that Scripture is pretty clear that we don't get to know the time, right? I, I must picture Jesus going, why do you want to know so bad when it is? Like, do you have an appointment that day? Is there something more important that you have going on on the day that I decide to return? Is there anything any Christian on earth ever could be a part of where Jesus comes back and you go, well, just hold on a minute. I got to just finish. No, right? There's nothing more significant and important. So quite frankly, the when is far less concerning. But that's what we've dealt with. And scripture is so unbelievably clear in many places about the fact that we don't know, but no place more clear than Matthew 24, 36. And here's what it says. No one knows about the day or hour or even the angels nor the son, but only the father. So the time and the hour, the day and the hour of Christ's return is so veiled that even the Son, even Jesus himself proclaims to not know exactly when it will be. It will be at a time where the Father sends him again. If Jesus doesn't know, guess what? You don't get to know either. Right? It's just common sense in the way it works. And so this morning, let's, let's take a, a focus a little bit off the when and let's look a little bit more at, at some of the things that Jesus actually says concerning our concern with the end times and with his second coming, with Christ's return. And we've been looking through the book of Luke. We've been surveying various points of Luke. Last week we were in chapter 11 and today we are in chapter 12 and we're going to look at a passage where Jesus pretty boldly teaches about what we ought to do. This is a beautiful thing. Sometimes scripture is veiled. Sometimes it's very hard to unpack. Then other times, Jesus just says, look, I'm coming again for a second time. Here, here's what I want you to do when that, but before that happens. It's very straightforward. And so let's stand this morning as we read from God's word. If you're new, we like to stand when we read from, from God's word in the mornings just because it's a, a differentiator between the words that I speak and the words that the Lord himself speaks, right? There's a reverence that we have. And so as we hear from Luke chapter 12, beginning in verse 35, we'll, uh, we'll stand together. Stay dressed for action and keep your lamps burning. And be like men who are waiting for their master to come home from the wedding feast, so that they may open the door to him at once when he comes and knocks. Blessed are those servants whom the master finds awake when he comes. Truly I say to you, he will dress himself for service and have them recline at the table, and he will come and serve them. If he comes in the second watch or in the third and finds them awake, blessed are those servants. But know this, that if the master of the house had known at what hour the thief was coming, he would not have left his house to be broken into. You must also be ready, for the Son of Man is coming at an hour that you do not expect. It's the word of the Lord. Praise be to God indeed. What is going on? Man, oh man, oh man. Just when I thought we had it together, huh? Yeah. All right, well, if we do that, we have no lights. <sighs> All right, Carlton, do me a favor. On the wall to your left, there's a panel. Press the number nine on that panel, and we'll just go, we'll just go full lights here. There we go. We'll just go like this, and it'll work out. <sighs> All right, so the first thing we need before we dig into this passage a little more is some context. Because Jesus doesn't do anything in a vacuum, right? He's been, he's been teaching them about other things. We are in a point where 
he has angered the religious leadership enough that they kind of want his head. And so they're following him around and trying to, to trap him. They're constantly asking him questions. And it's really nice when you, when you look at the beginning of, of chapter 12, it's kind of the first chapter after, after the Pharisees have decided they're going to go after Jesus. And the first thing he does is talk about bewaring of the leaven of the Pharisees. So these people are after him. They kind of, he's kind of on their list. They're following him, trying to entrap him. And his first lesson is, beware of those guys. It's not very subtle, right? He kind of goes right after them in the, in the immediate. But chapter 12 really has two stories that precede our text for today that are helpful to our understanding of what Jesus is trying to do. The first is the parable of the rich young fool. Right? He's talking about this rich person who decides that he's going to store up treasure for himself. He's going to fill his storehouses to the brim with way more than he ever needs so that he never has to think about or want for anything the rest of his life and he can take it easy and live a life of leisure and have it all set up. It's the person who wants to retire with not just enough money to be able to survive, but with enough money to buy the yacht. Maybe a second one on the other side of the world so he doesn't have to sail that one over there when it's time to go sail in the other waters, right? He, he, he wants everything and he wants to store it up and he says, look, be, beware of being that guy because this very night his life will be demanded from him. And by the way, you can't take any of it with you. Right? And so this first one is kind of a warning against material greed. Jesus is trying to tell people, don't worry so much about the stuff. Like Material greed is something that really hinders you from following me in the kingdom of God, right? The more, the more you try to accumulate on this earth, the more of a hard time you'll have following me. He says things like, it's easier for you know, somebody who, to go through the eye of the needle than it is for a rich person to enter the kingdom of God. And the imagery of squeezing a camel through the eye is, is something that's impossible. He's saying it is impossible, but with me, nothing is impossible. And so he's this, this setup of material greed to worry so much about things and accumulating of things is something that is contrary to a disciple who is looking to enter the kingdom of heaven, right? The second passage then, which immediately follows that, that parable, is one that most of us in, in church have heard many times, and it's his call to not be anxious, right? Don't worry about what tomorrow will bring. So it's this stark, don't store up stuff for yourself, right? doesn't mean you can't have a savings account, but if that becomes your idol, if accumulating and all of your hope in the future is in, this, in your 401k and nothing else, then, then, then watch out because you can't take it with you. And second, he says, don't worry about what tomorrow's going to bring. He says, look at the, look at the birds. They, they don't toil or, or anything. They just kind of exist. They don't worry about where their next meal is going to come from, and yet I provide for them. And look at the flowers in the field. They don't seem to really look for or worry about anything. And I just cause them to grow. I, I provide them with the, the nutrition in the ground that they need to grow. And so if I take care of, of birds and plants, which really aren't that meaningful, then how much more will I take care of my children? And so in the second one, Jesus is trying to say, God's going to provide for your need. And so don't worry about what comes next. And so it's the two kind of ends of the spectrum. On the one hand, it's the, the person that's accumulated so much. Don't be that person who puts all your trust in this and just accumulates. And on the other hand, don't be the person who's constantly worried about where your next meal is going to come from. Because right? I provide for my people. And part of how God provides is that he has us in an ultimate future. Right? If you are in Christ, you, you can't perish, even in this life. So even in this life, if you don't have your next meal, there's nothing that can touch you, even unto death. 
He's saying, so don't store up and put your faith here and, and don't freak out about every aspect of life because I've got you. The Lord cares for you. If he cares for birds and weeds, then he'll certainly care for his children. Right? And so that's, that's the, the, the mentality that he has going in it. And in our text for today, Jesus is telling his disciples that in light of his eminent second coming, that they should live a life of constant readiness. Right? Specifically, readiness for the moment of his return. Every waking second of their lives should be spent in preparation and readiness to be on, on high alert for, for the time of Christ's eminent return. And, and so the first question I have when I read a passage like this is we, we know that Jesus didn't return in the lifetime of the disciples. Right? They all, they, they've all been dead for thousands of years, and so they all lived and died their whole life without Jesus returning. So why on earth would Jesus tell them to be constantly ready for something he knows that's not going to actually happen in their lifetime? Right? Be like me looking at my son and be like, be ready. Any moment now, I'm going to jump out at you. And then I just got in the car and drove off to the store and he just sat at the corner of the house just waiting for like a whole day. Why would I tell him to do that if I'm not even going to be there? Why would Jesus have them be in a constant state of, of readiness for his return? Well, there, there's two possible answers. The first goes back to our Matthew passage. Jesus doesn't know the hour of his return. So it's quite possible that he just he didn't know. You could ascend and three days later, the father says, all right, go back. But, but there's more to it, right? See, Jesus, Jesus wants them to live a life of, of readiness. Because for Jesus, a life of readiness kept the Christian's mind, heart, and soul focused on that which was important. Jesus saw focus and readiness as the antidote to greed and worry. So on the one hand, you have greed. On the other end of the spectrum, you have worry and fear and anxieties. And, and, and right in, in the beautiful sweet spot, you have a mind just focused on Christ coming back. And Jesus is saying that, that kind of a life, that kind of a way of existing where you're just constantly ready for the return of Christ. You're always living with a mindset of, it could happen today. That is the kind of life that naturally causes all the other things to fall away. If you spend your every day just, just living as if Jesus is coming back by the end of the day, or in the next hour, right? It doesn't seem to worry you as much. It naturally causes life to fall into proper perspective. I can't tell you how many conversations that I've had with, with people that are, are you know, terminally diagnosed with illnesses, that they, that they kind of are given a, an end date to life. You know, you have six months to live, one month to live, two years to live, somewhere in the vicinity. And, and there's, there's a lot of things that go through the mind of someone who's been given such a diagnosis and is a pastor. I've, I've sat with a bunch of them over the, over the years, but there's, there's one or, or two things that kind of are always in common. The first one is that every person who's dying that I've ever talked to has stopped worrying about trivial things that we think are life and death. Right? There's things that we worry about every day of how much we need to get done or that work meeting that we haven't prepared for, and it causes us anxieties, and, and we just sweat all of this stuff. And, and one of the things that always happens when someone gets such a, a kind of an expiration date diagnosis is that they start to, to focus on the things that really matter. Right? They, they, they fear far less in this world than they did before. Right? And the other thing that happens is, not always, but, but, but most of the time, there tends to be a, a correlation between an increased generosity 
both from a, uh, for, for the church perspective and just in, in life as they go about their business with their friends and family and acquaintances that they know. There, there tends to be a sense of, what am I, what am I storing it up for? Right? I, I just, I just want to give my things away. The amount of times I've, I've sat with someone and they're like, well, you know, I, just, I should just give all this stuff to the church because, you know, I'm not going to need it. Right? There tends to be this, this kind of perspective change when we start to understand when our time is coming. And, and this, the eminence of their condition is what dictates their focus and their behavior. Now, Jesus' return is, is not a death sentence, but a life sentence in a positive way, right? Not in a prison way. We are sentenced to life, when Christ promises his return. And so there's not a, a date of death that we're given, but a date of life. And what we're told is nothing other than it's eminent. He tells them to live every moment as if his return could be that very moment or that very next moment. And so let me, let me ask you this, and I want you to, to kind of mull on it and think about it. If you knew Jesus was going to return tonight after dinner, how would that shape you? How would that actually shake you? Take a moment and really, really think about it. You, this is one of those times where it's okay to close your eyes and I won't think you're, you're sleeping. Would you spend your afternoon differently than whatever it is that you have planned today? Raise your hand if you would change your plans if Jesus was coming back after dinner. Right? Some of you are like, oh, I just do the same thing I'm, I'm already doing. Good for you. Let me know how it works out for you. Right? <laughs> would, you, would you leave here and just, just give away everything you had? Would you be terrified with fear or guilt or doubt? Maybe some of you would go home and you'd be really nervous, right, about how that's going to go. This is your, your last day before Christ's return. Would you just go home and read your Bible until the moment it happened right, and wonder what's going what's to happen when he shows up? Whatever your answer, chances are it would radically shape in some way, shape, or form the way that you would conduct your day, right? Jesus knew that this kind of eminence is the only way that the people of God are going to retain their focus on the Lord. If you think about it, whenever you feel like you fall far away from the Lord, it's because you lose the sense of eminence. And when we lose the sense of eminence of Christ's return, we start to rely less on that return coming and the reality that it brings into your life as a follower of Christ, and we start to rely more on the stuff that will keep us afloat in the meantime, the earthly things. Our loss of eminent perspective is the thing that allows fear to creep in. And when fear comes in, we seek safety in things other than God, like our stuff. We store treasures on earth. Because, well, he's not, he's not coming back. If you're honest with yourself, most of us live, live lives as if we are confident that Jesus is not actually going to return in our lifetime. You live a Christian life that presumes that you will live on this earth until your old age and then you will die and you will go in heaven. And at some point while you're up there, Jesus is going to say, all right, time to return. Right? Most of us live lives that presume that the time of Jesus' return, we're all going to be in heaven already and just be awaiting our marching orders. Most of us do not live lives under the presumption that Jesus could come back before I get to speak the benediction today. We don't. We don't have that eminence. And that's what Jesus is trying to teach his people here. He's saying, if you just lived as if I was coming back tonight, you would be all set. Don't worry about the time or the hour or, or all of the, the crazy details. Just live as if I was coming back tomorrow. What would you do if I was coming back? 
How would you go about your day? How would you structure your life and your, your appointments and the, the way that you talk to people that you're interacting with as you go about your day? I've called you to whatever career you get up and go to in the morning. How would you conduct yourself at that career if you knew that I was coming back tonight, tomorrow? If it was eminent, right? That's what he requires of us in this passage. And so then Jesus follows this up by giving them and through the disciples, us, these two illustrations that kind of help us, that are meant to be kind of giving us a readiness perspective on how we actually live this. So he's saying, be ready. Well, how do I do that? There's, there's two ways that we do that. The first is that we live like a devoted servant, right? Here's what he says. Blessed are those servants whom the master finds awake when he comes. Truly I say to you, he will dress himself for service and have them reclining at the table and he will come and he will serve them. So Jesus is saying them, the readiness looks like a servant awaiting their master after a wedding feast. Right? In, the, in, in those days, weddings would be days long and if you were the servant of a house and the master was gone at a wedding, you, you might not know when he gets back. And so you just kind of had everything ready. Right? They, would, they would actually be ready in a couple ways. They would, they would have the lamps lit Right? That's one of the things that it talks about. Their wicks would be trimmed so that it would be maximum brightness and they would constantly be refilling their lamps with oil. The other thing they would do is they would, they would have these, these girded belts. It literally means to be ready here, to gird your belt. And so what they would do is they'd have these long robes and if they were going to run and have to get ready and jump up at the master's arrival, you know, they would take the robes and they would kind of tie them and gird them into their belts so that they could run easier. They were ready. A good servant ready for his master's return would have food prepared so that on the arrival he'd say, I'm glad you're back. Welcome home. Are you hungry? Sit down and have a meal. When the master comes, they aren't slouching, right? The master doesn't open the door to find them sleeping and them waking and go, oh, okay, um, I, let me cook you something real quick. Just hold tight. No, they're ready, right? Have you ever gone to someone's house to dinner? They've invited you to dinner and it's like five o'clock and you show up and you get into the house and they're like, yeah, I'm going to start cooking in like a half an hour. Come on in, have a drink. And the moment you walk in, you realize that dinner is not starting till like 8.45 at night. And you did not have lunch and you were hungry. You ever been that guest? If you're the person who does that, please, please stop. <laughs> this is your public servant service announcement. No, a, a, a servant who is ready is when the person shows up, welcome, I have some appetizers for you. Dinner will be ready in five minutes. It's been on the stove, I've been preparing it. Come on in, right? We conduct our affairs and we live lives the way that prepares us to encounter Christ. We seek him in our everyday. We don't put off our, our spiritual growth because we just think we can coast through life until we go to heaven and then maybe we'll learn about God after we're already there or we'll grow spiritually after we've, after we've breathed our last and the Lord takes us. That's not what a ready servant looks like. So we are to be ready. We are to stay awake to the world. We're to be actively working in his kingdom, to, to be ushering it in. Right? Jesus tells us he was going to return in glory and his kingdom will come and it shall have no end. And so our activity in this world is the kind of activity that starts to live as if that's already happened. We breathe some of the kingdom into this world in the way that we love and care and serve those around us, in the way that we take the things, instead of being selfish with what the Lord has given us, we are selfless with it and we, we give it forth. And we use everything we've got, both our talent, our time, and our treasure to worship and to bring others to do the same. Right? And when Jesus 
returns, he should find us prioritizing those things which he values. There's another cool piece to this kind of part of the account, and it's this. It's a little different. It says, truly I say to you, he will dress himself for service and have them recline at the table, and he will come and he will serve them. So there's a twist to the normal master-servant accounts that we would read in Scripture here. It says that if Jesus arrives, if the the master comes and and the servants are ready to receive him, there's going to be a flip that happens. Is instead of receiving the, the, the things that the servants have prepared, the master puts down his stuff and he goes and he straps on his apron and the very things that they've prepared, he has them reclining at the table. This is the kingdom of God. He tells us, be ready. Prepare yourselves. When the kingdom comes, when your master comes back, when I return, you better be ready for me. But when he comes, he's not coming to be served by us. He's coming to serve us. Jesus returns. That's why we talk about when when, when we breathe our last and when Christ returns and the new heavens and the the new earth come and sin is no more and death is no more and pain is no more. We we aren't going to be waitresses and waiters serving the Trinity in heaven. We are going to get to recline at the table in celebration and he will be serving us because he didn't come to be served but to serve, right? Jesus' kingdom is backwards. The last or first, the first or last. We all know who's first. He will make himself a servant for the sake of his people and because he loves us so much. And so we are called to be ready. When we are ready to serve a returning master, when we've prepared it all and we've obeyed and we've walked in the Lord and we've grown in our understanding of who he is and Christ returns and we say, welcome, we've, we are ready, we've been waiting, we've prepared a, a place for you. He says, no, 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 I, that, that, that place is for you. Here, let me strap on the apron. Are you hungry? Come and sit at my table. It's the first illustration that we get here. So the second part of this talks about this posture that we should have about the timing. Right? We do get to talk about the timing a little bit. Uh, let me ask you a question to be entirely honest. Raise your hand. And this, don't, this, don't give the pastor the answer he wants. Raise your hand if you actually think Jesus is coming back tonight. Raise your hand if you really think it. Now, you might be guilty about your answer. But, but that's, that's kind of the norm, right? We, we don't expect it. We don't. We don't actually think that Christ is returning today. Well, why don't we think that? Well, because we've gone through many, many, many days, and it hasn't happened. But here's an interesting way of looking at this. Do you realize that every day that goes by, the statistical probability that Christ returns gets bigger? We're one day closer to whatever day it is than we were yesterday. It's more likely he comes back today than it was yesterday. Tomorrow when we wake up, if it hasn't happened yet, it'll be even more likely and even more likely and even more likely that he will return, right? The reality is it's going to happen one of these days. And what Jesus is saying in the second one is he talks about this thief coming, right? He says, but know this, that if the master of the house had known at what hour the thief was coming, he would not have left his house to be broken into. You also must be ready, for the Son of Man is coming at an hour you do not expect. We don't know anything about the time or the hour, the day, when Jesus is going to return, but we do know one thing. He tells us one thing and one thing only about the timing, that it will be a time that we do not expect. Christ's return 
is not happening during a cataclysmic event. See, we have a lot of end times literature that is out there that is complete and utter garbage. And it starts to dissect, right? They start to do the math and figure out what's the date and it'll happen after all of these big things have come to pass and we'll, we'll know when Jesus comes back because A and then B and then C and then D will happen and then, and then E will be Christ's return. Jesus doesn't say that. Jesus says that no one will know the time or the hour, but the one thing I can tell you is it's not going to be when you expect. Right? Look at the, the first time that Jesus came. During the most unassuming way. We think of it as Christmas. To us, it's a big part of the calendar. But, you know, one Christmas before, before it happened, it was just another winter day. It was just another day. In an unassuming cave. During a census of some town that no one really cared about. Jesus decided to break into humanity. And it's a thing that we celebrate as the most significant event of, of the year aside from the resurrection, right? But it was an insignificant time. Why on earth wouldn't Jesus return on a random Sunday afternoon in 2024? Whatever time it is, it will be unexpected. And so the only thing that you can do is to be ready because Jesus will come like a thief in the night, right? Not like a thief in the sense of of stealing and destruction, but like a thief in the night in the sense of just when you didn't see it coming. Most of us are sleeping at night, right? It's not going to be obvious to us. It's going to be at a, at a time that we wholly don't expect, right? And so what's the only reason that anyone would really want to know the time of his coming? The more I was digging into this text today or this week, one of the things I kept thinking about is, this obsession with the timing. Why, why are we so obsessed with the timing? And the only reason that I could come up with is because if we, if we could figure out when he comes, it would, it would permit us to not have to live the way he calls us to live until we got close. It's the only reason I could think of. Like if I could tell you Christ is going to return on August 4th, 2042, a lot of us would just kind of do what we want with our lives until about three months prior, and then we'd really get our godly stuff together, right? You'd see this church go from, like, what it is now to, like, 700 people in one day, right? All churches would be full, not just on Sundays, but, like, I would say, have a blessed week, and no one would leave, because you'd be scared to, right? That's not the life Jesus calls us to. That's not what he wants from us. This is precisely what the Father wants to avoid, and so he says no one gets to know the time or the hour. God doesn't want us to live as we please, and then give lip service to him at the end. God wants us to live lives that belong to him. He wants servants who will continue to push forward and ready the fort at all times, in all days, every moment. He wants servants who are going to be ready when he comes back, whether that's in an hour before this service ends or in a million years. This is one of the most difficult aspects of Christian life, is to, to maintain this holy anticipation. Because we grow weary. We have a natural tendency to have a short attention span. Right? The disciples, after Jesus arose, they started to conduct themselves like this. They actually believed in the eminence of his return. They didn't, they didn't know any different. They didn't have 2,000 years of, of hindsight to start to become complacent. They lived every day as if his return was imminent. They actually believed that he would come back before they would die. 
and, and they lived lives according to that, right? Think about it. That's why when they go into a town and they are pelted with rocks and thrown out, they pick themselves up, they treat their wounds, and they go right back in and they keep proclaiming. Can you imagine doing that? No. Why? Because we've become complacent. Because we don't actually believe that his return could be imminent. My friends, I'm here to tell you, it is highly likely that Jesus comes back before we finish worship today. And quite frankly, as a Christian, that is one of the, the, the greatest prayers that I have. I hope Jesus comes back before the sermon ends. Mainly because I don't know what else to say. <laughs> no, I'm kidding. Preparation for Christ's return is meant to be shaping for us, to disciple us. He's using this time of waiting to do some things. He's discipling his, his children into holiness. He's sanctifying us. And the other thing is that the Lord's waiting to return is partially due to his immeasurable divine patience. The Lord doesn't want to see anyone perish. It's to give opportunity for people to come to know him. And so he holds off. There, there is some of us, we know, we know people in this world who don't know the Lord, who we're, we're hoping for their sake he doesn't come back today. Right? Maybe you have a neighbor here like, hi, I hope the Lord gives it another year or two because we've been chatting and I've been trying to, to share the gospel with this person and, and, and if the Lord came back today, you know, they don't know him. Right? And so part of, instead of getting frustrated at the lack of Christ's return, part of it is a rejoicing of thank the Lord that he gives more people an opportunity to come to know him. Because there will come a day when that's over. He says, today is the day or the hour. I have come back. The time has come. And all will give an account. And those who are under Christ will live under grace. And those who are not, will not. Right. His making us wait is an act of gracious love and mercy. And in the meantime, he calls us to be ready. I want you to, to go home and reflect on that question today. What would you do today if he was returning tonight? That's a, that's a great life-shaping question to ask yourself really deeply as, as a Christian in your own time, in your own devotion and study, because answering that question helps you to figure out, how do I live for Christ in this day and age, in this world? What are the things that you would do? And, and, and once you have that list, what are, what's really stopping you from doing it now? Is there anything actually precluding you from living that way? Are those things of the Lord or of the world? I'm going to leave you with that, that challenge as we pray. Father, we thank you. We thank you for oh, your, your word that is encouraging, uh, but sometimes difficult. We, we all have to acknowledge that uh, we, we live with various degrees of, of devotion to you, but all of us don't really truly live lives of readiness. It's not meant to be a, a guilt trip or something that, sh that weighs on us too hard, but Lord, you do call us to that readiness. You tell us that your, your return is imminent, and that we should be a people that live each day as if it could be our last before you come back. And so we pray that we might have that reminder seated deeply within our hearts, that you would consistently be teaching us and shaping us and molding us. We thank you for who you are. We thank you that you are coming back. Thank you that you are a God of grace and mercy who desires that none of your people should ever perish, but that all should have eternal life, those who proclaim the name of the Savior. And so we pray that as we go forth from this place, that we might preach and proclaim the gospel loudly, 
to everyone we meet. It's in your holy name that we all pray. And all his people said,